we are playing into Republican strength by trying to punch lower and harder because they always punch lower and they always punch harder in those ads. We would have ads about how we're going to give health care to everybody and what a great state we could have in Georgia. And they would say, if you elect Democrats, your police gone, your military destroyed. They hate <laughs> white people. They hate America. Here's Fidel Castro next to Raphael Warnock, you know, and then we would say, well, they're not being honest about our record. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was like not, not even in the same league. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Sri Kulkarni, a career foreign service officer turned two-time Democratic congressional candidate who's now working as chief of external affairs for AmeriCorps. We spoke in Sri's personal capacity about his route to running for office and the lessons that he learned about campaign tactics from doing that particularly about his passion for relational organizing, which he came to through the experience of those two close runs in Texas 22. He's well worth your listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Sri Kulkarni. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Shri Kulkarni. I'm originally from Houston, Texas. I uh, went to the University of Texas at Austin and then spent 14 years overseas as a foreign service officer serving in Taiwan, Russia, Iraq, Israel, Jamaica, uh, and back in D.C. I also spent a year in the U.S. Senate working for Senator Kirsten Gillibrand on a Pearson Fellowship. I took a year out of the State Department to go do uh, grad school at uh, the Kennedy School uh, up in uh, Boston. And then um, in 2017, I resigned from the Foreign Service to come back home and run for U.S. Congress, where I ran in Texas's 22nd District in 2018. And then I ran again in 2020. After which I went for two months out to Georgia to help with the, our successful U.S. Senate runoffs there up until January 5th. Uh, and then currently I am working in the Biden administration for AmeriCorps as chief of external affairs. But just to be clear, um, this is in my personal capacity. I'm not here as part of the administration. And I'm here to talk about my own personal background in, in politics. <laughs> Right. And we're doing it on a Sunday morning, not part of government time in any way. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's a that's a pretty interesting career. And I know that as a congressional candidate, you kind of have to go through your background so often it probably uh, gets pretty boring to you. But I think for people who listen to this 
you, they may not know you. So could you go through like a little bit about your back, your family's background? Sure. Um, so I grew up uh, in Houston, actually, because Houston is a big area. So there's a lot of suburbs, but I grew up in the city of Houston. I was the son of an immigrant on my dad's side. Um, and uh, on my mom's side, our family goes back to the 1600s uh, in the United States. So literally uh, Sam Houston, the person for whom the city of Houston is named after was my great uncle. It's a very unusual background, but um, on my dad's side, my dad immigrated from India in 1969. And I think we had more of the immigrant lifestyle when I was uh, a kid. Um, we started out in a two bedroom apartment with nine people in it um, before we were able to move into a, a house. The neighborhood I grew up in was pretty rough. I saw a lot of crime, you know, multiple robberies in our house. I witnessed gun violence personally where uh, myself, my father, my brother were in a Taco Bell. and My mom was in the car with my little brother and sister and people opened fire right in front of us. Everybody had to hit the ground and I didn't know if my mom was going to make it out alive or dead. My neighbors across the street from me in my neighborhood were actually murdered in their own home. So I've experienced a lot of that. I, I also experienced being pulled into the police department to uh, to try and identify somebody who had mugged me um, pretty badly. And I got hit in the head multiple times. And when they showed me these six color copies, um, I said, I, you know, it was a month ago, I got hit in the head a lot. I lost some memory from that day. Uh, I don't know if this is helpful. And they said, do you think it could be this guy? And they start tapping on someone's face. And I, I said, I'm not going to go in a court and say that. And then they showed me six other pictures. And, and I asked, what, what exactly do you want from me? They're like, look, in that apartment complex alone where you were robbed, we have about 40 open robbery cases. These two guys have been implicated in several of them. They're not good dudes. We need somebody to help us lock them up. <laughs> and, and I oh, said, man, you got, you got the wrong guy. So I, like I said, I experienced, you know, gun violence, but I also experienced uh, the criminal justice uh, system up close and personal. Um, you know, some of the stuff that really affects us down in Texas is obviously climate change. And, you know, I experienced flood after flood in Houston one time I was trying to rescue my brother um, who was stranded because of floodwaters rising around Houston. And then we got stranded too. And my entire family had to spend the night on the floor of a stranger's house because there was no way to get across Houston because of all the floodwater rising. Well, I guess I'll, I'll add one, one more thing that, um, you know, when I talked about criminal justice reform, there's something else related to that. I was arrested when I was 18 for drug possession. That could have had a huge impact on, on my life. In fact, it got brought up uh, during the campaign multiple times. But I think for me, the big point was that I was able to go on to, you know, to Harvard and the State Department, et cetera. But, you know, millions of people are not. And uh, that's that's one reason why, for me, the criminal justice reform is extremely important because we, we know um, how much damage we're doing to families. I, I was 18 years old and my dad was sick with cancer at the time. And that's what I was going to come to. This is my probably the most formative thing for my youth. I had to not be outside of the house between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. because of this drug possession charge when I had to take my father to the hospital and the, and the cancer didn't you know, go on a, a schedule according to the rules of my probation there. It was extremely terrifying at that time, thinking that um, I might be thrown back in jail because I have to take my dad to the cancer ward at MD Anderson in Houston. 
I was at University of Texas at the time and I had to drop out of school to come home and take care of my dad because he needed so much care. So I did take him back and forth to the hospital. I did his IVs, you know, I did his physical therapy. Um, unfortunately, uh, after a year of that, my dad passed away when I was 19. And because of the healthcare system <laughs> in our country, we, we maxed out our lifetime health insurance and we were on the point of bankruptcy. My mom was taking donations from friends just so that we wouldn't go into bankruptcy because of uh, the medical costs on our family. I mean, that's, that's my experience with the healthcare system. <laughs> and one reason why it was really important for me to make sure that other people don't have to go through that again. So I went back to the University of Texas. I had to work my way through school. I, in fact, I, I still have student loans to this day from <laughs> from grad school that I'm uh, I'm paying off. Um, and then uh, I decided after college to join the Foreign Service. Uh, I think I mentioned my family uh, goes back to the 1600s here in the United States. But every single generation of my family had served in some kind of public service, usually in the military. You know, Vietnam War. My grandfather, all of his brothers. Serving World War II, um, all the way back to the American Revolution, I decided to uh, join the Foreign Service. I'd spent a year abroad in Russia because I wanted to help our country by reducing conflicts abroad. I think, um, as as we can, we could probably talk about conflict abroad and uh, the international situation does affect all of us um, in some ways that we don't we don't even know for until years later. So that's why I served in places like Taiwan and Israel and Iraq and Russia. Um, and I also love learning languages. I was a linguist um, by education in school. So I can speak English, Spanish, Hebrew, Hindi, Russian, and Chinese now and dabble in a few other languages. And I was actually supposed to be going out to India for my uh, for my next tour. In fact, I would have just come back um, about a month ago from a tour in India, except after the election in 2016, I wasn't sure whether I could serve in this administration based on just the bigotry, the misogyny, all of the things that had happened in the 2016 campaign. I tried to stick it out um, for about six months in the Trump administration. But the thing that finally pushed me over the line was um, the Charlottesville Nazi rally. That was the town that my mom was born in. And people had said before, well, this isn't really racist. Saying people are drug dealers and rapists isn't racist, you know, um, Calling, saying Barack Obama was faking his birth certificate. That's not really racist. Um, you know, trying to ban all Muslims <laughs> from this country. But the, the one thing that they would all say is like, you know, real racism is Nazis and it's, it's the KKK. Well, we actually had the Nazis and the KKK in Charlottesville and they killed a woman. And our president was still saying, well, there's very fine people on both sides of this issue. And I just decided I could not in good conscience represent this administration overseas. So let me stop you there because I have a couple questions about about your past before we get into you running, which is a pretty brave and uh, important thing to do in a time like that. You kind of highlighted a lot of the struggles that in your youth, but it's my guess that that uh, with your record of getting into foreign service in Harvard and and. UT Austin, that some things were going well for you also, that you must have been a decent student or more so than that. You must have uh, had some support systems that were working for you. Talk a little bit about what advantages you also had along with these challenges. Sure. So um, I think probably the biggest advantage was that my parents both had an education um, and growing up, you know, we 
we talked a lot at the dinner table about politics and geopolitics and history and literature. You know, my dad was a writer and he taught novel writing at Rice University. We had about 8,000 books in our house. And so my mom taught all of us to read um, as, at age two. You know, we were all reading chapter books before we started kindergarten. And I think that had a huge, huge advantage. You know, a lot of these, these kind of uh, differentiations on people's path, they can start before you even have your first year of school. Having two parents even, you know, like um, I know um, like the majority of my friends from middle school did not have two parents. Like either their parents were divorced or, you know, uh, widowed or something like that. So have, having two parents, uh, both educated, who were committed to our education early on, I think that had a huge impact. My mom, you know, she's proud of the fact that, you know, her four kids, so I'll just brag a little bit. So I went to Harvard for grad school, but my brother went to Princeton. My sister went to Columbia. My brother went to Yale. None of us on legacies, just, you know, we all got into these schools on our own. And I know my mom is really proud of that, but I will say she's even more proud of the fact that all of us um, tried to do something for social good, whether it was working in a startup that was trying to improve healthcare outcomes for Medicaid patients or um, being a data scientist, working on education projects uh, for Chan Zuckerberg or starting an um, education nonprofit or serving the Foreign Service. That commitment to public service was also something really early on um, that uh, my family instilled in us. People always ask me, you know, what's your most valuable asset? And I said, my, without a doubt, my family, <laughs> we, we support each other. Like I said, I, help, I had to help raise my, my little younger brother and sister. My sister was uh, nine and my brother was seven when my dad died and I was 19. All of them have I've helped support them at different times. They've come and lived with me in my post abroad and, um, you know, vice versa. When I didn't have an income for three years because I was running for Congress, um, you know, my, my family uh, definitely helped me out. And, you know, the hardest part about being in the Foreign Service, they asked me that when I joined. Um, and I said, without a doubt, being so far away from my family. And so I, I, would, I would say that's the, the biggest advantage that we all enjoy. You mentioned this sort of family interest in public service. Where's that coming from? There's a level of belief in um, our society. So on my, on my mom's side, like I said, you know, family comes here before the revolution and they served in all of these different you know, military conflicts. It, World War II, I think, is probably the best example. And my, my grandfather's generation, everybody signed it, all of his brothers, my grandmother, all of her brothers, they literally all <laughs> served in the war two of them, like one on each side got killed um, in the war. But um, there was a commitment to uh, this country and real, real belief in these ideals that we have around democracy. And there's something, something unique about this place. And then on my dad's side, I think, you know, as an immigrant, you know, when you, you show up here, you know, sometimes people say, well, like, wouldn't everybody show up here? You know, <laughs> like the, there's a lot of talk about the, the border in Texas in particular, but you know, especially over the last five years, that's been a huge issue. And what I say to people is I say, no, like not not everybody would come here. You know who would come here? Are the same people like our ancestors who came here, the people who are entrepreneurial, who were maybe they were fleeing something really horrible where they're coming from. But in either case, they're really committed to this country. And I think my dad was really committed to to the idea of this country as a pluralistic democracy where somebody with you know, his name and his color skin uh, could grow up to be anything you wanted. And he would always tell me the same thing because I, I did experience a lot of racism growing up in uh in texas um and my dad would tell me look you're just as american as anybody else and no one can tell you different so i think that was that was extremely important to me that we 
stand up for the kind of country that we want to live in because America is an idea. It's not like an ethnic group or something like that. You know, did you grow up multilingual? Unfortunately, no. Like that. So this is the funny thing. There's a lot of um, Indian American families that at home, you know, they speak uh, another language, you know, whatever their parents' native language was. Uh, in my case, my, my a my mom was American. Um, uh, my dad was the immigrant, but B um, because of some of the things. And I, let me just give you an example of a story. Like my dad came here on a Rotary scholarship in 1969. He was at Tulane. That's where he met my mom in New Orleans. He had to give speeches across the South at Rotary clubs. And at one Rotary club in Mississippi, he went to the bathroom. And this is 1969. A guy in the bathroom shoved him against the wall and told him that he he, he shouldn't be in that bathroom. And then somebody else walked in and saw it. And he said, hey, that's that's our guest speaker for today. <laughs> so he had to straighten my dad's shirt and say, oh, excuse me. And then my dad has to go out and, and address this same audience. You know, I mean, this is four years after the Civil Rights Act. There's there a lot of that kind of stuff. And, you know, for me, I mean, on multiple fronts, I kind of experienced this, you know, in ninth grade, I remember there was a black history program and all the teachers at my school got to choose whether to take the kids or not, which is very strange, I think. And I would never want that in in my school today. The teacher decided not to take us to the black history program. She said, we're going to have regular class. And I said, oh, why not? It'll be interesting and educational. And she said, because we're not black. And I said, excuse me, I was 14 years old. As he said, we're not all of us here in this room are of European descent, Shri. What, what race, except for you, what, what race exactly are you? <laughs> and, um, and I was kind of stunned and I just said the first thing that came to my mind. I said, um, I consider myself part of the human race, which, uh, you know, nobody else in the class backed me up. And it was the first time that I looked around and realized, because you don't have a mirror when you walk into class, that my face stood out in that group because everybody else's face was white. This was an IB English class. And I think there was a, a difference in the way that they tried to recruit people for the honors, the, the, the IB classes, to be frank. And then in 10th grade, in Spanish class of all places, my teacher said in front of the class, Shri, I met your mom last night. I expected to meet a little lady with a dot on her head. But um, your, your mom's white, so you're just a mutt, aren't you? And at this point, I didn't have anything, any snappy comeback. I was looking around the class and most of the kids were laughing, white kids. And then one black kid in the corner, he looked at me and just sort of nodded his head at me. I experienced a lot of that kind of stuff myself growing up. Unfortunately, you would think that that would be uh, long gone by now in you know, 2020 or 2021. I heard more stories like that uh, in my area than when I was a kid, which is extremely depressing to me. Yeah. In college, you do, you do linguistics and, and then go on to foreign service and learning different languages. What's the source of that particular interest that you pursue so far? Sure. Um, and, and so, and, and I actually didn't, even after telling that story, I didn't answer your question. The, 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 the short answer to your question was that my father was the type of uh, immigrant who wanted us to be really American at home. And so he only spoke English to us, even though he spoke six languages himself. So I learned Spanish in high school and, you know, also from, from waiting tables and anywhere you work at, at kitchens with kitchen staff across Texas, doesn't matter what restaurant it is, you have to speak Spanish, like, like a lot of jobs. Um, and then, um, in college, I'd been a real math and science geek, uh, growing up in high school, but in college, I wanted to go in a very different direction. Um, from high school, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, um, I just wanted to be a different person, like like a lot of people do when they go to college. So I thought that the hardest subject for me, actually, in high school was foreign languages. 
And so I wanted to study linguistics because I thought it would be a bigger challenge for me. And I also wanted to be able to speak to more people. And there's so many people in the world that uh, you would have access to if you learned other languages, especially, you know, the big ones. So I, I kind of set out to learn the you know, United Nation languages, uh, which I, I only have four of the six right now, English, Spanish, uh, Chinese, and um, Russian. But um, I can read a good bit of French and did a little Arabic while I was in Iraq. If you could do those languages, you could speak to a huge number of people across the world. And so I, I decided to, to study abroad in Russia. While I was there, there was a series of apartment bombings. In fact, it was a really strange time. I was there in Yeltsin's last year, and nobody knew who was going to succeed Yeltsin. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this guy gets announced, Yeltsin stepping down, and and this guy named Putin, who nobody had heard of, uh, really, uh, steps in. We were all kind of surprised because that wasn't one of the, <laughs> the choices that we had thought about. And at the same time, there was this you know conflict in Chechnya, which was sort of unpopular. Nobody really wanted to He's sending anybody down there to fight in Chechnya, which is part of, you know, Russia. Um, but it's a Muslim majority uh, territory in Russia. Well, there was a series of apartment bombings. Three different apartments got blown up while we were there. My, myself and my brother were both studying abroad together there. And my mom was extremely worried about that. Um, these apartment bombings around Moscow, terrorist attacks. After those apartment bombings, there was tremendous support for, uh, for going down to Chechnya and, you know, flattening the area. Uh, there was one one incident where um, some people saw um, someone putting some bags in their basement of their apartment building. And they reported to their local police. The local police went investigate. They looked at the tape, and on the tape it was FSB, which is kind of like you know their I don't know, FBI equivalent or, or sort of, um, but it, it's more closely tied with you know what their KGB was. But in any case, um, the official answer from the government at the time that that was just a security test which is a very creepy thing to hear. Since then, pretty much every journalist or investigator who has looked into that incident back in, you know, or these incidents back in 2000, uh, they've all died <laughs> under mysterious circumstances. Are you saying that these uh, terrorist incidents were done by the government to get them popularity to attack Chechnya? Or what, what's the implication? I mean, that, that's what a lot of people were investigating. I don't want to cause an international incident right now, but that, like the people who are investigating them, that are not alive now to talk about it. <laughs> that kind of led me in a different path. I I'd originally wanted to go to law school and become a civil rights lawyer. My experience in Russia, um, and, and, and then just to like finish that story, so in April, uh, Putin gets elected in his own right as president, and he's basically been in control of the country for the last 20 years. Watching that and watching the influence on a population and how you know propaganda and, and manipulation of the public can affect your entire country, that uh, all those things kind of scared me. But I also thought that I could help if I was working in um, a career which, which allowed me to learn foreign languages, which I wanted to enjoy, do for myself, but also allowed me public service. That would be an ideal marrying of my goals. And in the foreign service, you know, they allow you to do that. And I specifically wanted to go to to conflict zones and try to see if I could if I could help reduce conflict in the world. And so that's why I sought out places with disputed territories like Jerusalem and Kirkuk and Taiwan. I have a couple friends who did foreign service after college and were in places like Bonn after the reunification of Germany or, you know, just had experiences that were substantial. Would you recommend that as a, as a career path for people coming out of college? 
I mean, so the foreign service was great. I mean, it was a great lifestyle. I got to go to many different countries. Not only did I get to work abroad, but I also had friends posted in almost every country in the world that I could go visit. And they, they knew the culture and the language. And they weren't just business travelers. They're showing up for a couple of days. They, they really knew the places. And it's, it's a different experience living in a country for, you know, one to three years than just traveling for a week or something in a country. I enjoyed it tremendously. My family did visit me. I mean, I told you that I was so far away from my family. So I was, you know, missing weddings and, you know, all these things back home. And that's something that you just have to, you have to deal with it. It's, it's a stress on personal relationships, you know, and, you know, romantic relationships. But probably the biggest reason why I came back is because I was worried about what was going on at home. And so um, I, I definitely think it, it's a great career. You have to sign up for that kind of lifestyle. There was a, a friend I had who, his, his wife said she would try it for the first two years and then they tried it and then they, they said, no, like the lifestyle wasn't right for her. They went back to Idaho and the, the country that they were going to, which was such a big stress for them was Australia. So, <laughs> 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 um, whereas the other, like I would say the number one bid post in my, um, A100, which is like your, your orientation class, the people that you join the foreign service with who you stay tight with, you know, I'm still tight with them even 20 years later. Um, the number one bid post in our class wasn't Australia or London or something like that. It was uh, Islamabad, Pakistan, because, you know, that's where uh, a lot of the the action was in terms of foreign relations, you know? Yeah. Well, I, it attracts a certain kind of person, obviously. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking back to when Trump was running for office and when he got elected and how much it affected me, which was just my nerves were on alert the entire time. And I probably haven't shed that yet. And I don't think he's done with, and I think he's a real danger to the Republic. And, and I'm sure you've recounted this a fair amount, but how is that affecting you? This guy gets elected who is really different than anybody else we've had and not awfully terribly far from that Putin model that you've talked about in, in Russia. Like, I mean, like he's playing some of the same cards, you know, what were you thinking? I mean, to be clear, there's, there's, you know, hundreds of millions of people who live in, in Russia and they live fine. They live happy lives. I don't want the Russian government for my government here in the United States. You know? uh, and I'm fighting very hard to not have a, an authoritarian government like that. So during the campaign, I mean, obviously, like like most people, when when Trump first started and he literally started by attacking, you know, uh, migrants, you know, calling them rapists and drug dealers in his first speech. We thought it was a joke. A lot of us who kind of pay attention to, to politics and and it started to pick up steam. One of the incidents that really um, crystallizes for me was the, the Muslim ban. And, and just to be clear, because a lot of people tell me Trump never banned Muslims like that's a lie or some, something along those lines. Just to be clear, what we're talking about um, after these um, these terrorist attacks in, in France, you know, um, all the presidential candidates were talking about what the response should be. Should we end the visa waiver program, et cetera? And I remember Ted Cruz saying, you know, well, we should, we're not trying to ban all Muslims. And then a few weeks later, Trump issues a press release, which he reads himself in the third person. Um, Donald J. Trump is calling for a complete and total shutdown of all Muslims coming to the United States. And that was in December of 2015. I naively thought at the time that that was the end of his presidential campaign because, uh, you know, a bunch of Republicans were really they were saying, no, 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 we condemn this. You know, we distance ourselves from this. Um, 
that's such a fundamental principle in the United States. I mean, even before 1776, religious freedom was kind of the, the origins of, of, of these colonies here. I thought for sure that, you know, this is too much for the Republican Party. And they talk about religious freedom all the time, right? And instead, his poll numbers went up. And that's when my heart started to really fear, like, are we in this moment, like in the 20s with Hitler or the early 30s or something like that, where a demagogue who's just whipping up xenophobia is going to get more and more popular? And, um, you know, I was taking a year off from the State Department at the time. I was, you know, kind of on sabbatical doing my grad school at Harvard. And it's a very liberal place. Probably about 80 percent of us were progressives. But there's there was also a minority that was conservative there. A lot of a lot of military folks who were in my class and our our group uh, WhatsApp, um, people use it. They were, they were using it as a pro Hillary WhatsApp. And, uh, you know, we talked about organizing and knocking on doors in uh, uh, New Hampshire, et cetera. And, it, and I remember at one point like, towards the beginning of our year, I'd said, um, hey, guys, this is a group WhatsApp. You know, we shouldn't just use it as a, you know, a pro Hillary WhatsApp. And this conservative classmate of mine, he messaged me privately, said, wow, Sri, I'm really proud of you for outing yourself as a conservative at Harvard. <laughs> so early on, <laughs> and I said, I said, I'm sorry to tell you this, brother, but I'm not conservative. But one of uh, progressives' ideals is to make sure that minorities are protected, and at Harvard, you're a minority. <laughs> so, I mean, it was an interesting sort of role reversal there. And I was trying to make sure that there was an open space for ideas to talk. By the time we get to kind of, you know, August and September, and it's it's really scary that, you know, it uh, that it's so close. I was kind of ringing the alarm bells with my friends, like we should not be comfortable. Every single person who who can needs to go out. Our group knocked on more doors in New Hampshire than Hillary won New Hampshire by or uh, Maggie Hassan won New Hampshire by. But, you know, clearly it wasn't enough. Um, and on, on Election Day, I was at a bar. It was actually um, uh, John Harvard's bar <laughs> uh, right right near campus. And the only folks left after like midnight were the Republicans. Everybody else had gone home because people were getting really depressed. You know, I was a little bit intoxicated and was kind of making a joke. Uh, I said, well, you know, when they put me in a uh, in a concentration camp, you know, uh, well, one of y'all get me out. You know, these are all military folks. And, and they're like, and one of my friends was like, oh, no, Shri, um, I'll never let them put you in a, in a camp, you know. It was a little dark humor there. But another friend said, Shri, like, are you are you more metaphorically afraid or more physically afraid? And I said, I'm more physically afraid, man. Like there's there's going to be hate crimes. And there have been like the, like the worst hate crimes among almost against almost every ethnic group. You know, the worst hate crime against Jews has happened uh, during the Trump administration. The worst hate crime against Latinos has happened during the Trump administration. The, the guy who killed people in Pittsburgh said it was because, you know, wealthy Jews were, were were funding this invasion from the South. You know, the same thing, the guy who drove across Texas to murder Latinos in El Paso was because of this. So I, I mean, I was physically afraid. And several of my friends of different, like African-American, Indonesian-American, were all threatened that night on the street on, on Election Day. I mean, with Confederate flags and things like that. And this is not made up, you know. And so within 48 hours, we started uh, forming a group together. Um, to first to commiserate and people told their stories about being treated differently um, based on their race or their religion or people start stories of, of, of sexual abuse and even rape, you know, women, uh, because this is also a, a, a known sexual abuser who's just been elected a misogynist. But then we started a, a resistance there, you know, I mean, like people all over the country and trying to figure out how how we could like push back on this. Um, and I would say, I guess, like the the coda to me, I mean, there's a lot more to be said, you know, for the last few years. This was just about that experience that night and, you know, what we do. And I didn't know that night that I was going to run for Congress, but I knew that I had to do something and I was 
trying to figure out whether I could go back to the State Department and serve in an administration where the person at the top was saying these kind of things and I would have to defend it. I, I do think, I, I thought then, I still think today that Trump was not um, a problem. He's a symptom. And I feel like if, if anything, maybe in the context of COVID, you could say maybe it's a virus that's like constantly evolving. Eventually there was going to evolve some some virus that um, was completely divorced from the truth, you know, because I mean, he pushed things a lot farther than anybody could. That Overton window has been uh, expanded so much. Things that we always thought would have been a killer for a political campaign or were too much or past the red line, like literally everything, you know, whether it's handing classified information to the Russians in the Oval Office or saying that Nazis are very fine people. Like what we found is that there really is no red line and that American democracy isn't something unique and strong, better than any other country's democracy. People would always tell me that uh, our institutions are so much stronger than other countries. And what I tell them is that there's no institution robot who just comes down and saves us. Institutions are just people and they're as strong as the people behind them. And if, if we care about the ideals of this country, if there's something that actually holds us together, and, and maybe that's an open question, but I believe there is something that holds us together. And this experiment in pluralistic democracy here, which is really the first in the world, and it's the, it should be a beacon for, for everybody. We're the only country where people come from all over the world, millions of them, uh, to come here and try to form a society where you have uh, equal rights and we're still striving for those things. I think that's worth fighting for. And pe people tell me, oh, I'm not into politics. I'll tell them, well, politics is into you because other people who might threaten your rights, who don't have your family's interests at heart, they're interested in politics. And people say, but I, I just don't care that much about politics. And I say, do, do you care about the air you breathe, the, the water you drink, the schools <laughs> your kids go to, um, e everything in your society? If you actually like living in a democracy, then sometimes you have to fight for it. Running for Congress these days, it's not something you do idly. It's, it is a big effort, as you have experienced. What surprised you the most about what it took to mount a serious campaign? You came close twice. What surprised me the most? I mean, a lot of things like you don't know from the outside. Like, I, look, I know that, that money has an influence on politics. I know that, you know, my boss, when I was working in the U.S. Senate, was constantly across the street. Um, so you can't fundraise in the Capitol. You have to go across the street <laughs> to another building and fundraise. And she's just there, you know, half of her time was spent fundraising, not actually legislating. So I, I kind of intrinsically knew that. I did not realize um, to the, the extent to which you know, when people ask you how the campaign is going, my second time around, I was basically spending at least 40 hours a week doing fundraising calls before you do anything else, right? Um, and I had to sign a contract that said that 75% of that money would be reserved for advertising, you know, otherwise, you know, I wouldn't get support from the national party, et cetera, right? Um, and so when, you know, people would, would ask me, you know, um, well, how's the campaign going on these calls? I, I wanted, if I was being honest, I wanted to say, well, this is it, you know, <laughs> me calling you for money. That's, that's what we do most of the time around here, you know, and it's maybe like a tiny bit exaggerated, but not really, you know, like that was definitely the number one activity. It took up most of our time. And I was told that that's just how, how it works. You call a bunch of rich people for money. Um, and, uh, and then you buy a bunch of ads, you know, right before the election. And they would always say things like field, which most of the things that we think of as campaigning, knocking on doors, these rallies, you know, shaking hands, you know, kissing babies, like all of that was just kind of considered to be just kind of a, like window dressing on the side of the campaign. The real campaign was getting rich people to give you money so you can buy ads, you know, um, <laughs> which is extremely depressing. What is depressing? It's also kind of out of fashion and 
discredited to some degree that kind of campaigning, right? Like it's not to say that it isn't going on, maybe going on in all these targeted districts. If you talk to even people who have done political media for their career or political consultants, the return on political advertising has decreased enormously. People are so polarized, it's hard to get them to vote anything other than the party. They can't be reached as well. You know, the, there's just declining returns. There are, so some of the campaigning of the past, which was more uh, door-to-door relationship-based, things like that, are having something of a renaissance. Now, having tested this in your two real races, What's your theory about what does it take to campaign? Because, you know, when you're running for Congress, you're one line on a ballot and you're the victim of big forces, right? Big political forces that are pushing it one direction a little bit for one party or the other. You're also the victim of the nature of your district and kind of where is it in a partisan slant. Talk about your district and what would it take for a Democrat to win and how would you campaign if you had it to do all over again? Sure. Um, so there's a couple different questions uh, in there. I'll try to unpack it. But so my, my district um, was a solidly Republican district. In fact, it was Tom DeLay's old district. Um, for uh, for your younger listeners out there, Tom DeLay was the majority leader um, Republican from suburban Houston. We had redistricting in 2000 after the census. Um, but there was a split in Texas at the time between the Texas House and the Texas Senate. In 2002, when Republicans got control of the Texas House, he said, we're going to redistrict again. And Democrats said, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, it, it, the rules say only every 10 years. And he said, well, we're going to do it anyway. And they redistricted in the middle of the cycle. And so he gerrymandered all of Texas to give us the lines that uh, led to 2010, which then led to the, to the elections of 2020. So gerrymandering compounds over time. That's my district. The previous midterms, um, my incumbent, uh, who was named Pete Olson at the time, he had won by 35%. So it wasn't exactly like an opportunity, you know, one of these high profile uh, districts in the country. But I also kind of felt, you know, I, I would use these, you know, war analogies from my grandfather's day. This is like D-Day. You know, you have to have people all lined up. You know, I, I was worried about fascism taking over my country and all of us have to fight, even if a, a lot of us are going to get killed on the battlefield, you know? And so I, I, I went back home, but there's also some opportunities there because this is a district that had a huge number of immigrants. One out of every four people was an immigrant and um, uh, about uh, 60% of uh, the district was people of color highly educated district. Um, so you would think that this is a perfect opportunity um, for Democrats, actually, um, to, to flip a district. But the problem is that people didn't vote at the same rates. Texas is a, a, a state where the majority of the state is people of color. Most people don't talk about Texas that, that way at all. More, more than 50% of Texas is black or Hispanic. Um, uh, if you're like, People of color are women, almost 70 percent of the state. But the but the Republican Party is about 90 percent white men, which is which is true on the national level and at the state level. And so we tried to approach it differently. I mean, first of all, I was one person starting out. I didn't have any money, didn't have any connections. And in fact, I referenced this earlier. I uh, went three years without an income because the ways that people run, um, usually you have either a spouse that supports you, you're independently wealthy or like all incumbents. Um, or elected officials like our current co- congressman there, 
um, they have a job that pays you while you're running. <laughs> so you get, get your full-time salary and you're ca- campaigning at the same time. I didn't have any of those things. I was just a middle-class public servant. So I uh, took out my entire retirement and that's what I, I lived off of, um, you know, for, for that period of time. And I was one person in my cousin's living room, just going around making speeches <laughs> kind of like a, like a lunatic, you know, but we started gathering volunteers. And one of the things I talked about was all of us having a stake. You know, my, my father's immigrant story was really important to me. All of these immigrants here, nobody was actually reaching out to them. They thought it was too hard to do, you know, it's just too low return on investment. Um, so we actually ran a pretty unique campaign where we were campaigning um, in multiple languages, not just English and Spanish, but Chinese, Vietnamese, Hindi, Urdu, Arabic, Gujarati, Telugu, Kannada. <laughs> um, we, we, we campaigned in 27 different languages, um, which no campaign uh, had been run like that in the country. And honestly, if we'd been a targeted race, the Democratic Party wouldn't have let me do that, you know, because that's just too far outside the box. Weird idea um, that doesn't have anything to do with raising money and buying ads. Right. Not only we campaign in multiple languages, but we also found and I didn't know the word relational organizing when we started. I didn't have a background in elections, a background in you know foreign policy, um, which I think helped me, because if I had had this standard background, then we probably would have done the standard type of campaign. So we not only would. Uh, get people calling in multiple languages, but we would take these lists. So say if you're Gujarati and you live near Sugarland, which is the biggest town in, in our district, that's where Tom DeLay was from and that's where I was living. Um, get all the Gujarati names. We'd find the Gujarati last names and then give them to people like Gujaratis who live in that zip code or that precinct and have them call them. And what you found very quickly was it's not just that like they're Gujarati and they could bond over the phone. A lot of those people on the list, they knew those people because they're part of the same sort of uh, temples or same kind of community networks. And it was that I sort of came upon relational organizing that way or organically. Um, but what you realize is that that's actually how um, politics, as you said, had been done for centuries. You know, this idea of just mass blasting people is rather new. You know, go back to New York in the 1800s and people were organizing. Um, it was, but it was, you know, Irish neighborhoods, Polish neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods. Now it's you know, Indian, Pakistani or Chinese, but it's, it's the same kind of thing. And so, um, so we started creating lists of, uh, where, where we would just ask people, you know, uh, our volunteers, do you know this person? Yes or no. You don't even have to knock on the door. Just go down the list and just tell us everybody that you know, and started putting together a massive list, all kind of micro-targeted, you know, whether it's, you know, Gujarati or Telugu, whether it's like uh, Hindu or Muslim or, or Shia Muslim or Sunni Muslim or, you know, with Latinos, it could be, you know, Latinos aren't a monolith either. You know, it could be Puerto Rican or Venezuelan or Guatemalan. These people, like in, the smaller the community, the more likely are to know the other people in the community. And so by the time that we were done, we had the largest relational organizing program of any uh, congressional campaign in the country. And this district that was supposed to be uh, 35% Republican in the last uh, midterms, we got it down to within 4.9%. Highest ever turnout from the Asian community there, which is 20% of the population. In 2018, we weren't in the top 100 races in the country. Uh, According to the DCCC, they wouldn't even pick up my phone calls. And then in 2019 and 2020, now we became one of the, the top races um, and like I said, the, the D trip kind of took over our campaign. We had the whole suite of consultants, which we didn't have the first time around. Um, and they pushed us into more of this traditional type of campaign. Like you, you said, you know, this, you know, the return on investment for these political ads is getting lower. Like that, that is absolutely true. Like you, you and I know that, but that, 
that is not the model that they're using because people have asked me, well, is the D-trip learning? You know, and I said, I don't like look at Texas six, like a Democrat didn't even make the top two <laughs> seats there. It was, a, it was a runoff between two Republicans. So I don't I think there's so much built into this industry that even like even if you say, you know, um, yeah, you're not getting the return on investment from these political ads. The the people who are controlling the, the, the largest sums of money, like, I mean, in Texas, there's a couple hundred million dollars spent across the country, about $20 billion spent on elections. And the vast majority of those resources are still in this system. And I kept asking, why is it that, like, I see all these cases where just the opposite, like, so the top three races in Texas, for example, the three open seats, um, I had the highest money differential. At one point, I had 40 to one money advantage cash on hand against my opponent. They kept telling me I was doing the right things. I was concentrated. I was disciplined. And then my friend Candace Valenzuela in Dallas. Um, so I, I didn't have a runoff. My opponent did. She had a runoff. Her opponent did not. She had the smallest money differential. And on election day, it was completely inverted. She she got the closest to flipping a seat. I was the farthest away of the three of those top three races. And I saw that pattern again and again, where the people who raised the most, most money didn't even come close. In, in 2018, the top three races, Texas 7, Texas 23, and Texas 32, all those had very competitive primaries and money should have a bigger impact on primaries. The, the top money raiser came in fourth place in all of those races. And every time I'd ask this, the consultants in the D-trip, I said, why is it that if, if I'm supposed to be raising money all the time, how can the people who raise the most money don't win? And they would say, well, th- that was an exception because this is the year of the woman. That was an exception because there was a super PAC there. That was an exception because uh, this is a, just a terrible candidate. And I felt like it was somebody telling me, well, that ship went over the horizon because they had bad wood in their boat. That one had a bad captain or they were going in the wrong direction. No, the world just isn't flat. (laughs) The world isn't flat. It's round. And I keep seeing these ships go over the horizon. And the entire industry, I think, there's a huge problem with the the system, not any individual person. So those of us who who know this, clearly, we need to make sure that we're letting people know that that's People would always ask me who to donate money to. Like in, in, in Georgia, people would ask me, where do I donate money? I said, we're, we're raising half a billion dollars. We don't need more checks right now. We need more organizers, you know, and, and the money needs to be spent in the right ways. And so my whole theory of that, and I can I can go explain that to you if you want, um, that relational organizing literally is the key to changing our entire uh, electoral system. And I can explain why if you want. Uh, yeah, I mean, and one of the things that I... I've had a couple guests from the Ossoff campaign, Georgia runoff people, and they did a lot of that there, both paid and unpaid. Tell me about your theories about relational organizing. Sure. Um, so for, first of all, like the, the contrary theory, you know, that, you know, advertising, you know, these TV ads are the most important place to spend your money. And then, you know, then mail and then paid digital and organic digital uh, would be the like they, they didn't even want me to talk about that because there's no money to be made off of it. I feel like it's literally just the opposite. <laughs> that The kind of social media that you put out yourself to your friends is much more impactful. People don't change their mind. They're not persuaded by TV ads. I haven't seen that in my race or in Georgia or anywhere. Um, but the thing that, that really does impact people is someone they know reaching out to them, right? I mean, it's a, it's a very different sort of uh, pitch when someone says, you know, a, a friend of yours calls you up, especially if you don't know much about politics. If you're a low propensity voter, putting a bunch of TV ads out there isn't actually nearly as effective as some one of your friends or a relative or a classmate, somebody reaching out to you. And so that's what we we did in our campaign. That's what we did in, in Georgia, too, to get, find, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of voters where we knew somebody who, who knew them uh, personally. And the, the thing is, people are getting all of these unknown messages, unknown calls, and of course, ads all over their phone. And it just turns into noise and people don't even want to answer an unknown call anymore. So 
this is a, a, a critical distinction between traditional organizing and relational organizing, because people have said to me, well, Beto focused on organizing. He still didn't win. A, he was ahead of the curve in Texas. So the curve was Obama lost by 16, uh, Hillary lost by nine, Biden lost by five and a half. Beto only lost by 2.6 statewide in Texas. But it was a traditional organizing campaign with massive numbers of people calling strangers, knocking on doors of strangers, right? With relational organizing, um, there's more effort on the front end to, to try and map out these networks of people, first on the volunteer side. So right now, my volunteers ask me, what should we be doing right now? I told them, like right now, over a year out from the election, every single one of us, we should be establishing who's our precinct mobilizer, who's our precinct captain, not just at a, at a county level you know, or city level, at the precinct level. Who is actually going to mobilize in that district? In, in my race in uh, 2020, at about August, I was getting worried because the, the polling numbers and the predictions on both the primary and the runoff on the Republican side had just been totally wrong. And I was nervous <laughs> that we didn't have the right system for November. And I said, can I carve out all these millions and millions of dollars that we're raising? Can I carve out 800,000? Um, we have about 30 precincts. We have somebody really mobilizing that precinct. But there was about 120 other precincts in my congressional district. Where we didn't have that. And I said, I'd like to hire a full-time organizer for each one of those precincts that will work that precinct at that level of mobilizing. And they told me that that's not the way this works. Field only moves the needle to the three points. Can, can, I, can I ask a question about that? Yeah, yeah. So you're the candidate. Yeah. You're in charge of this campaign. Mm-hmm. How can they be, you said something about signing a contract, but how can they be telling you what to do rather than you telling them what to do? Well, so, so people have asked me that, like, why didn't you just tell the, like the democratic party, the D trip to go shove it, you know, uh, <laughs> back in April, 2019. Well, I um, mean, it might be more, I mean, you have a background in diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and there are these kind of like some small negotiations there, but at the end of the day, the, the carrot is always money, right? So they, like, if, if they're going to raise the big money for you, you know, you have to do these things if you don't, I mean, they're, I mean, because they also kind of play with you during the primaries, um, trying to decide who they're going to support and, um, you know, throw, throw donors your way, et cetera. And then the same thing as you go into the general, you want to be on their list, their red to blue list. So you're going to get invited to all these things, you know, and you're going to get connected to all these donors. And in my debrief with them, they asked, you know, what they could do better. And I said, well, like, Look, you, you all were really good at raising money. You helped me raise a ton of money. Our race was so much more expensive in 2020 than in 2018 on, on both sides. The total spent on Texas 22 from super PACs and candidates was $34 million. It's the second most expensive in the country. All of that money being raised did not help us win the election. We did worse <laughs> with all that money than we did on our own when we were folks. It's always hard in politics and campaigns to put a finger on why you do how well you do, right? Like it was a better political year for Democrats two years before. Yeah, for sure. It, it, was, it was a, it was a midterm swing in our direction. So you would, you might expect to do a little worse just from national trends. Uh, how was the candidate comparison? Like was your opponent stronger in 18 or in 20? Um, so I, I, I guess to put it bluntly, like my theory of the case, you know, asking what my theory is, I think a lot of these things that we think matter a whole lot really don't matter that much at all. I'm looking at all these factors, like the money, it didn't correlate across the state. The platform, people would say, oh, it's because you run too too far to the center, you run too far to the left. We had people running like like DSA campaigns as congressional candidates, and we had people running like blue dog campaigns. And I actually had run 
some, something like both. Like in, in 2018, I ran on a progressive platform. And then when the D-Trip came in, my positions had to be more to the center. And the, the truth is nobody, nobody paid attention to those things at all. Like, I mean, I had all this policy on my website. My opponent only had two things on his website. He said, uh, I, uh, I'm going to support oil and gas jobs and I stand with Trump. That was his entire platform. And the Republican Party didn't even have a platform last year. They voted not to have a platform. So, <laughs> so what I'm saying is that that doesn't matter that much. Um, I have told people who asked me for my endorsement, you know, state rep candidates or congressional candidates, I said, I'm not going to endorse any. First of all, an endorsement doesn't win an election to begin with, but I'm not going to endorse anybody because you have a good resume, because, you know, you're a friend of mine or we went to cocktail parties with you or because you're a good public speaker or because um, you're attractive or tall or especially because you raise the most money. I arguably we had all of those things and we, we, we didn't win. Um, uh, I think they all of those things are. are uh, well, how tall are you? Uh, six two. Yes, yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, like all of those things can ma- matter, but like not to the degree that people think yeah. that they. So, do. what do you think really matters? What what I, what I think really matters is trust. Like, I think everything this this entire social uh, angst, uh, this kind of I don't know, what, I would call it a catastrophe. The last few years of what we're going through is about a crisis of trust. It's true with vaccines. It's true with. Um, you know, the border, it's, it's, it's true in our politics. It's all, all comes down to trust. And so, um, if, if you have people that don't trust what they're getting, these political ads, if they come into you and you, you don't trust that the, the source of them uh, means anything, then it, it's not going to, uh, it's not going to affect you. It's not going to, you know, change your vote. I, I think the kind of persuasion that they're trying to do isn't really happening. Whereas, when you go into a neighborhood, like, so whether you know somebody or not, if you're, if you're knocking on a door, I would say still, you should be knocking on doors in your precinct, in your neighborhood, because then you can tell people like, I'm not just coming through a stranger here and some other stranger is going to come next week. I live a few streets down. My kids go to the same school as you. We have the same problems. You know, there, there's a, there's a trust issue there. When I was in the foreign service, the Russian government was putting out all this propaganda in Ukraine, this disinformation. We were trying to counter it with information. Same thing happened in our elections. You know, people were spreading all sorts of disinformation. One of the worst was that the Democrats have these pedophilia rings and people would literally spread this on WhatsApp and emails and things. You can't counter. What I learned is you can't counter disinformation with information because information is not as interesting. Nobody shares the information. They share the disinformation much more frequently. The only way to counter disinformation and, and, and I, I tried, I tried to put information right next to people and they just, it, would, it wouldn't have any effect whatsoever. Um, the only thing that counters disinformation is, is, is trust. So if somebody sends you a WhatsApp and, and you say, oh my God, look at this, the Democrats are running sex trafficking rings and you're their best friend and say, that's bullshit. Like, trust me, you know me. That's what makes a difference. It's this, the same thing throughout our entire system. So if you do these relational organizing campaigns right, you know, like one of the things that, that, um, that Beto did uh, right in 2018, I think was when he when he went to 254 counties. All the consultants said that's a terrible idea. Like, and he also didn't do any polling. You know, I think that they were they were totally wrong, and he was totally right because people, a lot of people in some of these like rural counties, had never seen a Democrat show up before. It doesn't mean I, I can't show up in every precinct, 150 precincts. Beto can't show up in 254 counties all the time. But what we should be doing is we should have somebody in that county, somebody in that precinct that they know that there's somebody organizing in their community. They have a direct line to their member of Congress or to their center. Their their community is organized that that way. And so I think that honestly, to, to put a point on all of that, when you asked about the candidate, when we won in Georgia on January 5th, the next day, uh, some of my team said, 
we've proven this concept. Um, so let's go out and flip another Senate district using you know massive relational organizing across the state next year. But uh, let's let's make sure it's a candidate that we really love, you know, because different people had like different candidates they loved. And I said no. And they said what? And I said no. It shouldn't be because on the on the Democratic side, we always have to fall in love with Beto or you know, uh, or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or whoever it is. We, I mean, we, we don't fall in love, then we don't want to do anything. On the Republican side, they have a whole machine of people, you know, they're Sheldon Addison's and their Koch brothers and their Grover Norquist's and their, their you know, uh, Ralph Reed's and, and Jerry Falwell's. And it doesn't matter. The person that you put at the top of that could be a reality TV star host. It could be a traitor. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You put it on top and the whole machine goes with it. I want to be part of a movement that cares about clean environment for our kids, that cares about safe environments in, in our schools, that cares about education and, and health care and all of these things. And that movement will sustain from year to year. And the, the part about the candidate, I I literally don't think that the candidate is as important as we as we think it is. I think the organizing is completely undervalued. I think the, the reason that we won Georgia is because we had massive numbers of people. We had a higher proportion of the electorate in January that were rural black voters than in November, which is mind blowing. It's crazy. You know, that's the result of organizing. That's not the result of a candidate making a great speech or a good advertisement coming out there. It's because someone actually talking to these people and in the areas where we where we couldn't find enough volunteers because they're not there, hire people, pay someone in that community to organize their community because then that money is going into the community, not to some media consultant somewhere else. I guess I agree and disagree in many different parts of what you said, so it's a little hard. But like, I think that the platform matters to some degree. I think that the candidate matters to some degree. I think the fundraising matters to some degree. I think the national climate matters. But I think when you're campaigning that it's proven sort of scientifically and people who watch it carefully know that you, that a message is more effective from someone that you trust, right? And that you ought to be doing more of that because that's the only way you're going to get persuasion. It's extremely hard now to separate your run from what's happening with national politics. Do you think like if you had what they call like the generic Democrat versus the generic Republican in a generic year, like your district would land at uh, 5144 or would it land, you know, Republican or where do you think it would land on average? So some of this is like trying to put a bunch of multiple factors together. You know, I, I think probably it, it would have been like something similar to where we ended up, which was worse than what our polling told us, by the way. Yeah. Well, that happened across a lot of races in Texas and elsewhere. Right. right. And, it, and that's the problem. That, that's right. a problem. And, and, but turnout, I mean, somehow turnout on the right was far higher than we thought it was going to be. And and maybe because they were how they were campaigning or just how they were revved up, right? Let me give you a counterpoint here, right? So um, all of our strategy, like all of that advertising money, those billions of dollars, the vast majority of that $20 billion is spent on what? It's spent on what you said, persuasion, right? You know, how are you persuading people? I don't think that we're persuading many people, right? Persuading means someone is going to vote some way and then you get them to change based on whatever it is, like a TV ad is going to get them to change. Like there's very little evidence that that's actually happening. And we try to analyze for the state of Texas, how much of, of the results were, um, as best we could tell, were directly related to persuasion activities versus turnout activities. Persuasion activities were like 6%, like this tiny, tiny slice. And that's what almost all the money was being spent on, right? Whereas the turnout, if we, the, 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 quote unquote, feel, the organizing, all of that is about, about 
turnout. It's not, it's not about going and, and, and changing people's minds. It's about getting people to show up. In Georgia, we, we had 91% of a presidential turnout in January, right? That, that's, that's the huge difference. And in, in, in our case, like you said, Republicans were turning out. We were not investing in turnout. We were not showing up. We were not doing the work we needed to do to get those people to show up. If everybody in Texas voted, I'm very confident that we would be a blue state already. Very confident of that. But they, the Republicans are better at turnout. And then also when you talk about going down the ballot too, people would say, tell people to go down the ballot, tell people to go down the ballot. That, that's a message. And everybody can argue about, oh, we need to refine our message this way or that way. I mean, it's a very easy thing to argue about. If you don't have, uh, if you don't think about the messenger and the medium first, then the message doesn't matter because it doesn't get into your brain. <laughs> you, you have to have some messenger and some medium that will get to that person. And the medium is not TV. The medium, like I said, is is text messages, WhatsApp, email, or face to face communication, or phone calls. Like those are the things that can actually affect people. And the messenger, it, if we have trusted messengers in these communities, or either physically in your community, somebody that has a connection with you, or part of your ethnic or religious community, or some some kind of bond to you, that's very different than 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 a cold call. And so. Before we ever get to whether we have exactly the right message, because you and I, like 100 people could have 200 opinions on the right message, but the messenger and the medium has to be targeted in that way that we are actually affecting turnout. That, that's how, how Democrats could win across the country is by, by increasing turnout, not by trying to fight this game of political ad. I saw the political ads that they spent uh, you know, half a billion dollars on. If it was just political ads in Georgia, we would have lost Georgia for sure, for sure. We are playing into Republican strength by trying to punch lower and harder because they always punch lower and they always punch harder in those ads. We would have ads about how we're going to give health care to everybody and what a great state we could have in Georgia. And they would say, if you elect Democrats, your police gone, your military destroyed. They hate <laughs> white people. They hate America. Here's Fidel Castro next to Raphael Warnock, you know, and then we would say. Well, they're not being honest about our record. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was like not, not even in the same league. The one ad that I think that made the difference, though, um, out of all three years, like probably the most effective ad were these big billboards. There were giant red billboards across Georgia. And they said Purdue and Leffler didn't deliver for Trump. Don't deliver for them on, on January 6th. And you know who was paying for those was <laughs> Democratic donors, right? And at first I was skeptical. I was like, well, <laughs> it says on the bottom right who funds it. People can just look it up. No one looks up anything. <laughs> and so th those when people saw those and they said, oh, no, I'm with Trump 100 percent. Those ads were effective because they weren't trying to persuade someone. They, they were trying to do what the Republicans always do to Democrats. We have a coalition and it's very difficult to hold all these coalitional elements together. And they use that against us. This is the first case where I saw Republicans in civil war with each other. Uh, I mean, that that's that's the bottom line. I think ads are much better at that than they are at actually getting someone to vote for us. The way we get people to vote for us is to get out there and actually talk to them to organize those, those communities, those neighborhoods, those precincts, those counties. We, we have to do that work. In Georgia, there's 2,600 precincts. We hire, in addition to the volunteer, the, the paid side, and these paid people were low propensity voters themselves. So they had their, their, their mom was a low propensity voter, their, their sister, you know, their, uh, the person they went to high school with, or, you know, the person they work with, they're all low propensity voters are so bringing all these new people. We had 2,888 paid community mobilizers for 2,600 precincts. Texas has 8,000 precincts. If we're raising money right now, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be raising money, but we should be using that to hire people for at least like the last six months of the campaign to organize 8,000 precincts across Texas. Some of these consultants will say, oh, that would never work. That's never been done before. The effort in Georgia was the largest effort of this kind, really. 
um, that, that I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. Well, I, t- I talked to Zoe on the podcast who was part of hiring all those yep. people. <laughs> and uh, she's an energetic person. Uh, are you happy you ran? You spent four years of your life running and not winning. On balance, how was that experience for you? I guess a couple things here. Like uh, one, I'm I'm happy that we uh, broke some ground um, in terms of like different ways of campaigning. You know, multilingual campaigning and you know, multi-ethnic and uh, multi-faith campaigning that other people have looked at and uh, started to emulate in other places. So that was something I'm I'm really proud of. Uh, I think that we we motivated a lot of people. We gave a lot of um, inspiration to folks in an area. You know, for me, growing up was just. It, there was just no chance. You know, so many people worked on campaigns all this time. And, and this was the closest that we'd gotten in a very, very long time. In fact, actually, there's only one time that a Democrat had won. That was when Tom DeLay uh, resigned. You know, a lot of young people, you know, the, the, um, the heads of the uh, young Dems for Harris County, Brazoria County and Fort Bend County were all part of my campaign. You know, I mean, there's so, so many things there. And now we have both Harris County and Fort Bend County are completely blue. County judge, district attorney, first African American district attorney ever, first uh, you know Asian American county judge in the country. Um, so all of those things are are things that I'm really proud of. I know for myself personally, I used to wonder if I was in the 30s, you know, and my country was just changing around me in Germany, would I have just kind of like kept my head down because it was too dangerous, or would I have stood up and fought? And to me, this is sort of a personal test, and I'm proud of myself for having fought. Looking back on it, it, you say, you know, why did you listen to these folks? Why didn't you just do your own thing as a candidate? If I could go back to myself, say in April of 2019, when we relaunched the second campaign, I would have told myself, do what you were doing in 2018 because you were on the right track. All of that time that we spent just focused on on money uh, and not on the kind of relational organizing that we did in 2018 was to our detriment. What I wanted between 2018 and 2020 was to take that relational organizing program and increase it by an order of magnitude, 10 times as many. I wanted at, at least 100,000 people relationally organized across our district. And that that never happened because we ran this, you know, traditional fundraising operation rather than, you know, organizing campaigns. So I don't know if the, the way that I spent my time over those three years uh, actually was getting us closer to the, the result, like whether, you know, I, I was fighting, but I might have been like, had my gun pointed like over the hill instead of like <laughs> the enemy or something like that, you know, because. Um, well, you know, it's campaigning is art and science and people are working on the science of it. Um, and they're studying relational, they're studying different things. They're comparing different types of outreach as scientifically as they can. But the truth is you're dealing with humans in a chaotic system and it is way more complicated than one little piece of that. It's hard to run a great campaign. Well, so I agree with that. Um, but I, I would say, you know, you and I, you said this earlier, like, oh, this political advertising, like, you know, people don't really believe in that anymore. Well, the people who run the whole show do, right? The whole industry does, like the whole party. Even after this, I was talking about this with a, um, a member of Congress right now who who won their seat by primarying another Democrat. So they were kind of insurgent themselves. And they said to me, it's like, yeah, but Sri, you know, some organizing isn't going to change things. The person who raised the most money usually wins the election. And it just, it, it, it was like a dagger in my heart because I was like, this is so easy. You're such an intelligent person. What you're saying is that the incumbent usually raises the most money and the incumbent usually wins. That's not the fact that the person who raises the most money usually wins. If you control for incumbency, that goes away immediately. So 
bottom line is I, we can study all this stuff, you know, but like you said, it's people like there's, there's, there are people who work in this industry who don't realize what you and I are saying that the, the thing that they're spending most of their time on isn't helping us win elections. And if we, if we don't win elections, I mean, what, I don't know if I want to scare your listeners, but I kind of t- had a long post this week about doomsday uh, and how it started literally th- this week. Uh, what I mean by that is when the Texas Democrats uh, were breaking quorum to st- try and stop Republicans from suppressing voting rights, that was one of the most important things, more important than than probably anything we're doing like on COVID, on climate change, anything right now. And the reason is this, um, it's not just those voting rights they're taking away. And for those out there who are not who haven't been following this, uh, Texas Republicans were trying to block 24-hour voting, drive-through voting, which are uh, were very popular this past year, but they were used majority by Black and Hispanic voters. <laughs> they don't want to allow people under 65 to vote by mail. And the, the reason supposedly is fraud, but they allow people over 65 to vote by mail. Same envelopes, but it's it's the people voting that are different, right? So we know, and we know exactly why they're doing that. That trend line that I talked about, everybody can see it. 16 points, nine points, uh, five and a half points. We're exactly where Georgia was four years ago. Four years ago, Georgia and Arizona uh, went for Trump. Um, they had four re- uh, Republican senators. Now they both went for Biden. They had four Democratic senators. That's where Texas should be in 2024. So first they're trying to, they're trying to strip voting rights away. But the bigger fight that's kind of come up now is this redistricting fight. If we had an independent commission in Texas, but more than 46% of people voted Democrat in Texas, they would only have a two-vote two lead from Congress from Texas. Because we don't have an independent commission, they have a 10-seat lead. After this year of redistricting, they could have an 18-seat lead. I've seen the maps already, and there's no reason why they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. That's enough right there to take over Congress. And not only uh, for this year, but those lines are drawn by the state reps. We came very close. You know, We had to flip nine seats. People don't realize we, we didn't flip any of them, but if we had flipped out of 11 million votes, 12,000 people had flipped the other way. We could have taken the Texas State House and stopped all this gerrymandering. Now it's another 10 years and we're going to have all of those lines are going to be redrawn and it's going to be worse in 2030. And the way that gerrymandering works, it compounds every decade. And so we've seen this in our past where 60 to 70 years, one party has basically dominated uh, Congress. And I, I'm afraid that we're going into a period like that of 60 or 70 years where there won't, won't be about competitive elections anymore because there won't be a way structurally um, to to make these elections competitive enough to even win. And, you know, some of my friends have said, well, we haven't had doomsday in the past, uh, Sri, you know, why, why is this different? This is different because we've never had a president who was willing to not turn over power at the end of their uh, term and who tried to fight it with in the courts, try to use DOJ, try to pressure states, and then finally had a violent attack on the Capitol to stop the transfer of power. Now, with the law that Georgia's passed and, you know, with Kevin McCarthy as a Speaker of the House, they, they'd be willing to go with that. If Texas passes such a law, if Florida passes such a law, they won't even have to fight for those states because they can overturn the will of the people in the presidential race in 2024. So we could be in a situation two and a half years from now, where we have a one-party state effectively uh, in perpetuity until some cataclysm like like the Civil War or the Great Depression, which shakes things up again. So that, that's the doomsday scenario. And I think it started when eight Democrats went back and they now they're, they've made a quorum and, and the Texas Republicans are going to be able to take away those voting rights. If you say, well, just win elections and you can fight on climate change, just win elections, you can fight on criminal justice reform or on health care. 
Well, saying, oh, well, just win an election and then you can change the voting rights. <laughs> that, that's a much harder proposition because they're trying to change the rules of the elections right in front of us to, to make sure that that's not even uh, possible. And I even say to my conservative friends who say, well, that might be better. I don't like AOC or I don't even like Biden or something. Um, I, I prefer President Romney, you know, and I tell them you're not going to get a President Romney <laughs> in this one party system. Romney is to the fringe. Lynn Cheney is to the fringe of the Republican Party. The, the people, uh, the majority of the voters in the Republican Party believe that this election was stolen and Trump won it. They're more like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the and the Lauren Bobitz. And you're going to get a lot more of those in this situation where these people are going to get primaried and we're going to be talking about Jewish space lasers and legitimate rape rather than debating healthcare and climate change. You know, I think we're in a very, very dire predicament for democracy right now. Some people, I think, are too complacent, both on the on the left that don't think that Biden is doing enough or on the center that think, well, we've got control of the White House, the House um, and the Senate. All of that is in real, real danger from the state level right now. And I think if, if people and you could tell that story about the corn break wasn't even above the fold. I, I could barely see it pop up in my feed this week. And I literally think that's a turning point for all of American democracy. So I guess I would say to, to all your listeners out there, you need to make sure that everybody, you know, realizes how close we are right now to, to losing our democracy. If we're not completely motivated in every single place across the country, where especially every state where we have a competitive election. I think we have to win statewide in Texas in 2022 in order to prevent doomsday from actually happening. So normally when I listen to somebody make statements that strong, I'm inclined to disagree. But in this case, <laughs> I, I actually agree with everything you're saying. I think you're exactly right. I think that we are in serious danger as a country for not just Texas, because of this is going on in multiple states that are controlled by Republicans. And because we have Trump or DeSantis waiting to be president. And if things are not going well, you know, in a two party system, the other party is going to win. And it doesn't matter who they put up, no matter, doesn't matter how crazy they are. They could have Congress back in two, in a year and the presidency back in three. I mean, I, I think honestly, if, if we, don't win statewide in some of these places, you know, like we have to win in Georgia, we have to win in, in Texas. There's no way to stop them from, you know, taking over Congress and then potentially overturning the election in, in 2024. And some friends have said to me, you're being overly pessimistic. The Supreme Court wouldn't allow that to happen. And I oh, say, yeah, right. <laughs> which Supreme Court, like the five to four Supreme Court that decided the presidential election in 2000, the six to three Supreme Court we have right now, or if, if the Republicans win in 2022, and uh, Breyer, the oldest justice, steps down uh, in 2023 or 2024, uh, McConnell's already said he would marry Garland and then we'd have a six to two Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not going to save us. We have to do this ourselves. Um, and, you know, I, I would say on top of that, the, the, the something even for people who are kind of like not political or, you know, independent, what I've told them is I said, look, there's an even more fundamental danger here because you say, like, what, what is it that holds us together? What is American democracy? If the ruling party, you know, if the Republican Party is ruling in 2024 and this kind of scenario comes about, they will be ruling in a situation where Arizona has more blue voters. You know, Georgia has more blue voters. Texas has more blue voters. They could be a minority party, like so representing a minority of the country. Right. But have no way to lose power. And so their, their incentives are not to build a broader coalition or to appeal to more voters. Their incentives are to use that power to disconnect electoral politics, the democracy 
from power in the United States. And then you got a situation like, say, the old government in South Africa, where the, the ruling party, they're, they're going to do more and more to uh, to suppress people's uh, right to participate and to separate themselves from democracy. And that that's a scary situation for for anyone in our society, because like if you don't take advantage of your right, there's a lot of people who say, well, oh, I, I, I'm not, I wasn't that concerned about voting anyway. You might as well ban me from recycling, you know, <laughs> like um, but do you want to be in a situation where you don't have that ability anymore? In the future, that's the real doomsday that we're talking about. And so, I think everybody across the political spectrum—I mean, unless you literally are like Marjorie Taylor Greene yourself—and and to your point, Marjorie Taylor Greene, people who are funding her opponent, like I'm sorry, but that that district is gerrymandered. Once you win the primary there, it's done. It's yeah, done. You can't, like, she's undefeatable. Right. She's undefeated. There, there's no there's no way that anybody in her district, there, that enough people in her district. The only one who could beat her would be someone to her right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There, there's there's not enough persuadable people in the way that that district is drawn. They they will vote for an axe murder as long as they you know are pro-life or they, I mean, they're on the Republican side of the ticket there. The districts that we can't gerrymander are counties. Counties can't be gerrymandered and states. So we have to win statewide in Texas. We have to win statewide in Georgia. These state rep seats, these congressional seats, you're going to be tilting at windmills, fighting these battles that can't be won. But if we, if we win statewide in some of these big states, I mean, Texas is, that's why I talk about Texas so much. It's the, the second biggest state in the country. It's the biggest competitive state. We have 38 seats. They're going to be redistricted this year. 38 seats. I mean, just Texas alone can decide control of Congress. So that, that's why I think... Texas is the most important place in the country right now. So you're clearly full of passion on the political side now. You're immersed <laughs> in it, the domestic side of politics. You have a job in the administration in a fairly nonpartisan uh, thing, uh, national service, and yet you're worried about the fate of the country. Do you get back into the arena at some point, the political arena? What are you thinking for yourself down the road? Well, so like I said at the outset, I mean, I'm here in my personal capacity, but I do have a day job <laughs> um, trying to promote uh, national service and volunteerism across the country. And I think it's, it's a really important mission. I don't want to go back and do the thing that I did, um, which was call rich people for money uh, 40 hours a week for a couple of years. Right. I, I will never do that again. Like they people ask me to fundraise in in Georgia. And I said, absolutely not. And they said, but you're so good at it. You know, you raise so much money in your race. And I said, yeah. And I hated it the first day and I hated it more the last day. I will help with any kind of organizing effort. And I think if like when you talk about the arena, to me, again, it wasn't about me as a candidate winning. When people asked me at the beginning of um, the campaign, uh, what's your ambition? I mean, politicos, you know, uh, industry people, what's, what's, what's your ambition here? You know, do you want to be like a senator? Do you want to be governor someday? You know, and I said, no, my ambition is to serve my country and my community as best I can. And they're like, no, 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 don't give me the political answer. Give me the real answer. And that to me, that encapsulated everything. The fact that nobody in the industry thinks that that can be a real answer, that everybody is in this for some kind of ego or narcissism. That, that's the part that, that scares me because that means that the whole industry is so cynical about actual democracy, that this thing that we're trying to do. And, and honestly, I don't think we're, we're selecting for the, I mean, if you're selecting for the best telemarketer, somebody who can get somebody to give them $2,800 on the phone, when when they get to Congress, you know, when they're in these leadership positions, how, how can we expect them to be the best leaders? You know, we should be selecting for the best leaders. I mean, when I ask these state rep candidates and, and congressional candidates 
about their organization. I, like I said, I'm not talking about, you know, how, how much money they raised or what a good public speaker they are or anything. I'm asking them one question. How many precinct mobilizers do you have? If you have uh, 30 precincts in your uh, uh, district for state rep, show me th- 30 people committed to you right now to organize in those areas. If you're the congressional candidate, show me 100 people right now that are committed to organize their neighborhood for you. And they say, whoa, whoa, that's that's such a that's a ridiculous bar to meet. And I said, is that any more ridiculous than raising a couple million dollars? But one of these doesn't have anything to do with the presidential election, I mean, with winning the election. One of them, it absolutely does. And, and the thing is, if you've got those people committed to you, that shows me something. That shows me that you are a leader, that you've actually gotten your community behind you in this in, in this fundamental way. And th- those are the kind of people that I think we should be, uh, should be selecting for. I never wanted to be a congressman because, you know, I wanted my name on a sign. I wanted... I wanted to, to fight because I'm scared about what's happening in our country because of literally because of Nazis, <laughs> Nazis in the street. That, that's why I ran for Congress. And if I get involved again, it'll be on the organizing side because I think we need to flip Texas. If you're on a podcast. You can't see. But, you know, you can see I, I got a tattoo here. It's a tattoo of the outline of Georgia. And it has um, it's a, a magnolia, but the magnolia is blue. Magnolias are not usually blue, but neither was Georgia until this year. Each one of those petals on that magnolia represents 20,000 voters that our team, uh, you know, Zoe and Josh and I, that we mobilize in Georgia. And it's the first English tattoo. I used to have only foreign language tattoos on my body when I was a foreign service officer. But it, it says good trouble because I think John Lewis would have been proud of what we did. But my Georgia friend said, you're from Texas. Why can you get a Georgia tattoo? Why don't you have a Texas tattoo? And I said, just wait. When we flip Texas blue, I'm going to get a giant blue Texas <laughs> across my chest because I think uh, that, that's, that's actually what I care about. When people ask me if I'm going I'm to run again, I said, I don't want to win a gerrymandered district. That's not my mission. My, my mission is to flip my entire state and actually have representation that looks like the state for once. Well, I'll tell you, I hope you you and whoever you uh, end up working with are able to do that because it would make an enormous difference. <laughs> and it was really great to talk to you today. Um, is there a question I didn't ask that you wish I had? Just to reiterate the kind of question that my volunteers are asking, they're like, what can we be doing right now? And I just want to emphasize that. Um, what you can be doing anywhere you are in the country where you're listening to this is you, you can be getting together with other people, you know, first within your own circle and organizing, committing to your own precincts, right? Mobilizing your own neighborhoods, your networks and your own communities, the people that you know. And those relational organizing, it builds outwards from that. So first do that. Figure out like in Houston right now, I'm asking all of my volunteers, figure out who's the precinct mobilizer, the precinct captain, who's going to be responsible for turning out these people in your precinct. And let's map out the entire city of Houston. I want hundreds and hundreds of these uh, mobilizers and figure out what neighborhoods we don't have those in. Secondly, people, uh, when people say, what can I say? All of that stuff that people do, like when people say, you know, getting on Facebook isn't very useful. It actually is because on the Republican side, whenever we'd put out messages, they'd immediately have this army. And in my case, like an army of good old boys from my opponent who were just pushing back. They would say, that's lies. That's lies. We need to have people out there saying those same messages again and again. You and your friends need to post on your own social media, wherever other people can see you build up that buzz. You know, so in Texas, for example, it was the winter storm. And now it's the situation with COVID and, and the schools, all of those things that get you so angry. Don't let people forget. People told me, well, um, We'll forget about the winter storm, you know, a year and a half from now in the elections. And I said, only if we let them forget, they'll forget. There are people who are wearing a T-shirt right now 
from a, a, a comment that Hillary Clinton made five and a half years ago in a closed door room saying, I'm a deplorable because they keep banging that drum. We need people all over the country organizing in their neighborhoods, banging that drum loudly on their own organic social media right now, getting more and more people um, uh, involved in the movement. And don't don't stop until November of next year, because that, that's that's what it's going to take right at this moment, a year ahead of time, not not two or three months ahead of time to get that in, entire group mobilized. So I hope anybody out there who's listening to this, who actually cares about <laughs> doomsday and about our democracy and what's going on right now, they know they, they have a role to play. Every single one of you, whether you're working on a campaign, whether you're a candidate, whether you're a volunteer, every single one of you should be doing this right now, organizing our precincts, our neighborhoods, our, our communities, and talking about these things, all of you at the same time. That That's what we have to do in order to set the groundwork to actually win in 2022 and push back this wave of bigotry, division, <laughs> hatred, anti-democracy that we're facing right now. I'm with you. Uh, thanks much for taking the time. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. <laughs> That was Shri Kulkarni. Shri is Shri P. Kulkarni on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.